is the Reformation over? I want to present to you, first of all, the fact that I think there is probably, I hope I'm wrong, I'm hoping that I'm not just a, a being negative here for negativity's sake, but there may be generally widespread disinterest in the Reformation. Is there, a, 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 other than some select or a few places, is there a broad emphasis on it? I think there's several reasons for that. First of all, I think that a lot of our energy today, when I say our, I'm speaking of the evangelical world. Now, that begs for some definite, the word evangelical has just become so elastic, <laughs> it's including some really bizarre belief and professions. But I think that the, a lot of the energy within uh, evangelicalism is being spent on liberating our nation from the assault of liberalism, leftism, the secularization of society. That's not a, that is a concern. It's one of my concerns. But I think that there are, there's a right way to go at that and a wrong way. The, I think that the, the looking in the Reformation theologically, biblically, that's the tonic that we need in counteracting the spread of secularism. I also think that another reason is just general doctrinal apathy. <laughs> that um, people are, you know, the sins of the culture become the sins of the church. And for some time now, feelings have become the basis for determining what's true and not true rather than truth determining what's true and not true. And just general doctrinal apathy. For example, the way in which many people move from one church to another with relatively disinterest in what is provided in terms of biblical teaching and what doctrinal commitments exist. People are more interested, and I've read this, uh, I'm not pulling this out of the air, when they want to consider a church, many of them are looking more at facilities and children issues. No, that children issues is not an unimportant matter. But they look at, they look at the nursery, they look at the facilities. And doctrinal issues, uh, that <laughs> is not on the radar screen. Uh, just general doctrinal apathy. Maybe that's enough on that point, but I want to go now to the question, what was the Reformation? So I'm going to look over my shoulder. Let's look in the rearview mirror for just a bit. The Reformation, the spiritual rebirth that took place in Europe in the 16th century. That's uh, really reducing it down. Uh, it was a recovery of the gospel, a spiritual rebirth, as going back to the gospel, to Christianity, as it's depicted in the New Testament. The word reform itself means to take a new shape, distinguish between reform and revival. There is an important difference. And 
the great religious, social, and political movement in Europe in the 1500s that aimed at reform within the Roman Catholic Church but led to the establishment of Protestant churches. That's the more academic way of defining the Reformation. It was on October 31st, 1517, that Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. I read about five or six of those. I don't think I've done that here. I thought, well, I should have done a little bit of that because they're really <laughs> good. I read about five or six of those theses this morning over at uh, Grace Community Fellowship. But in those 95 theses, Luther condemned the abuses of the indulgence system and he challenged all comers to a debate on the matter. So he was loaded and ready. Then between the years 1518 and 1521, Luther ended up being forced to separate from the Roman system as the only way to get reform. When he started out, he thought, <laughs> we may think naively so, but he really thought that if he could just get Pope Leo to understand how the indulgences were being abused, that there could be a, a cleanup time and things would be all better. Well, it didn't take long to find out that that was not happening. And what were some of the contributing causes to the Reformation? I'm brief here by necessity. But one is that the Roman Catholic, the church that it, as it existed up to the time of the Reformation, the early 1500s, it refused to accept reform efforts. There were those by the mystics in the church, uh, Wycliffe, John Huss, leaders of the reforming councils, the humanists, all the, the Renaissance humanists were not all bad. There was a growing... Do they want to return to sources, go back to the Greco-Roman world and the languages, the rites, Aristotle, Plato, it was a mixed bag, but, and not all of it was good, but there was a desire to get back to sources, and with that became a questioning spirit that began to develop among especially intellectuals in the academic community to begin to challenge the church. The rise of nation-states especially in Europe. Now, they created the climate for it. The, for example, the, the German people. Why should we be spending, sending our money down to the Pope in Rome and moving, transferring, you know, like taxation without representation in a sense? The rise of the middle class changed things. A healthy middle class is good for any society in more ways than one the rise of the middle class. And these things contributed to the development of, for the, made the climate right for Luther. Luther didn't step into a vacuum when he came forward and challenged the church. There were a lot of things in the providence of God. If you've studied this before, we have here at times in how that the birth of Christ was just providentially the right time in so many ways. So was the Reformation. All right, now let's go to the next question. What were some of the important results of the Reformation? Well, it ended the control of the churches 
by a universal church. The universal church no longer was, had absolute control, oh, even over the, the secular state. It did. I've forgotten which emperor it was who the, the pope um, was punishing him. He, had, he trudged with his family all the way up to uh, over the Alps, came in, in the snow, and waited outside to approach the Pope, and the Pope made him stand out in the snow. This is now this is a political power person with his family. He made them stand out in the snow, stay outdoors for three days, and then listen to his complaints. All right, so you had the power of the church over the state. That changed. You had the rise, another result, the rise of free churches. Our church tradition and churches like ours go back to, and of course, the denominations, Protestant denominations, go back to the Reformation. And <clears throat> this also initiated a period of time what was called creedal development. Creeds begin to be written. If you, if you have a study Bible, that's uh, some of the better study Bibles have the creeds in the back of the study Bibles. Free churches tend to be just a little suspicious of creeds, but they can be very helpful. And they were, they were put together by men who gave a lot of serious thought to the Bible, to how to articulate truth and set it forth for the church. There were theological systems that grew up out of the Reformation. Oh, my. I mean, think of you know, Calvinism and Arminianism. Need I say more? That really defined the landscape for... Um, a lot of ecclesiastical church development, personal Christianity, the rise of seeking God. Love, what, what did it mean to love God with all one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor in terms of actually following biblical paths of obedience rather than just living under the suffocating uh, sacramentalism in the Catholic Church? The rise of democracy, um, the, the stimulation of capitalism. I mean, it's, this is... Uh, <laughs> When you look at the Reformation, you can see that it just exploded the world. And, and then, of course, uh, what we know as expository preaching began to find its own again. It had that traction in the first century, but began to be increasingly diminished. And that's the way ritualism and sacramentalism, that's the effect upon good Bible exposition. It disappears. So you had a return to the gospel of the scriptures. How important is that? It explains our own spiritual, the, the legacy that we function under and have been given by our forefathers. Evangelism, the spread of the gospel throughout Europe. Uh, I had a course in college on the history of missions. I thought it was a really a valuable course, but I don't see it much. I don't, I mean, I, in curriculums that, uh, uh, that I look at from time to time. I thought it was uh, an excellent course, very helpful in stimulating a sense of what has happened throughout the world. Not a course in church history, just the history of missions. And then the revivals that came up out of the Reformation, the, the Puritan influence, the First Great Awakening in the 1700s, enormous importance and the impact of our nation, right strategically placed there in the, the Ground zero in the, in the First Great Awakening was 1740s and 50s, and how that did a lot of preparation for the formation of our own nation and its institutions. And those men, the intellects, not all believers, but came with a, at least a theistic worldview and had been impacted by the First Great Awakening. 
Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, and then these civilizational changes. I have, uh, I have a, had this for years. It's an excellent civilization and the Protestant Reformation. It's put out by the uh, Trinity Founda uh, Foundation publication, and it mentions some of the, the impact that the Reformation had, religious subjectivism and stagnation, the priesthood of all believers and democracy, the Bible alone and constitutionalism. Why do we have a constitution? Why do we have the form of government we have in our nation? It came out of the Reformation, the, the, the concepts, the theology. Christian faith and religious liberty, the Reformation in law and economics, and, and so on. It's uh, quite an eye-opener. All right, now, my first statement is the Reformation is over. I'm going to say it's over, it's not over. The Reformation is over. It's obviously over historically. And I'm not just trying to be cute here. There are some significant differences that we have to recognize and respect. Uh, the geography of the world uh, and exploration changed. You had cities that grew up around rivers up until the time of the Reformation. Well, up to the Re in the Reformation, that was the time of great uh, global uh, expansion or uh, of, uh, development and uh, exploration is the word I'm looking for. Between 1492 and 1600 has been called the Thalassic period in medieval history. That's not, a, uh, that's not a term to describe some aspect of evolution. It means that civilization developed about the seas, the Mediterranean and the Baltic. So all that changed. Political changes, social changes, society became organized in a different way. The old feudal system changed. So religious changes, so there have been tremendous changes, but that doesn't eliminate the fact, as we're going to see, that the Reformation is not over. The Roman Catholic Church did make some changes as a result. How long ago has it been since you taught your course in Roman Catholicism? Three years. Three years. All, right. All right, so we're probably, if those are in the class, we're probably a little rusty on remembrance of that, but that was a valuable course. I guess it's online, available somewhere. I hope it is. But the Catholic Church changed as a result of the Reformation. So it wasn't a washout completely. It was renewal and reform. It was reaction against Protestantism. The oratory of divine love between 15 and 17, 17 and 1527. Catholics got in motion. They saw, yes, there are abuses in the, in the papacy, in the priesthood, in the church. We've got to clean up our act. And... As a result, uh, Roman Catholicism got into gear with and uh, in, in, in spreading their own, having their own version of missions. The 1600s was the great century of Roman Catholic missions. And you can't understand the world today without understanding that. The Jesuits became a reality, and oh, did they really take they were missionaries on steroids to getting the message of the Roman Catholic Church out. Then there was reaction against Protestantism with the, in Spain and the Inquisition and the index, the Inquisition and the index, books that were banned and that couldn't be read because they had 
possible Protestant connections. The Council of Trent, 1545, 1563. So the, the Roman Catholic Church did get in motion and make changes, and some things for the better. Now, <clears throat> is it over in the minds of many people today? I think it is. In the minds of people. Why? I've mentioned one. Secularism. Doctrinal apathy. Ecumenical efforts. This is a major, particularly in the 90s, we had two great times. We had the Catholics and Evangelicals together. And then in 1999, we had another, I'm reading a book that uh, I hadn't, hadn't even written my name in it. And I found it uh, that uh, is uh, really kind of an eye-opener of the Evangelicals who came together in, in a gospel, in agreement on the gospel. 18 affirmations and denials with regard to the gospel. And it's in the appendix in the back of the book. And uh, R.C. Sproul and those connected with him, very helpful. In contrast to what those uh, evangelicals said, were, what they said were uh, inclined to be in agreement that Catholics and evangelicals did have more in common than they didn't have in common. So that. And then the concord, concord between the Lutherans and the Catholics in 1999. So there have been things that have happened that have settled in in popular Christian culture and th thought processes think, well, what's the big deal? It's over. There's very little difference anymore. I want to go then to the next. The Reformation is not over. It's not over. I, I have the, the solas now listed, and I want to address those in, in a way to show you that there is work still to be done, and the Reformation is not over. There are some of these books that I've recommended to you. If you're reading, I hope you are. I've worked on the church over in Noonan today about reading um, The Unquenchable Flame and other books. But several of these better books address this very issue as the Reformation over. I know Erwin Lutcher does in Rescuing the Gospel. He's got an excellent closing chapter on it. Why the Reformation Still Matters by Reeves and Chester, it does. And the book uh, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves, it has an excellent closing chapter. These are important uh, pieces of literature. You know, We can't think any better than what we know or we're just listening to ourselves all the time. And I, um, I'm going to hitchhike on some of this. But I want to speak to the first, it's a bullet point that I have here that precedes this five solas, namely the gospel compromised. I don't think I have, uh, no. The gospel compromised. The gap between evangelicals and Roman Catholicism is wide, just as wide as ever. Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, has not changed its official position that human merit cooperates in the process of salvation. That's basic, fundamental. And, I, and it's amazing. And I've been, I've been reading some of these. I'm interested in these theologians who've, uh, who are considered to be kind of uh, academic superstars. Theolo I mean, theological academic superstars. And I read some of the things they say about the... Uh, the Reformation being over, and you say, what am I missing here? Uh, and, and, you know, it's one thing, Lutzer brings this point out in his book, it's one thing for scholars, quote-unquote, to sit around a table and forge agreements and make statements 
And it's another thing to actually see what exists, namely reality, and that the Council of Trent and the Catechism of the Roman of the Catholic Church and what goes on in churches. And I was talking with Frank about this earlier. It's Grace Community has got a significant number of uh, former Catholics in their church. How many? Yeah. I, and Erwin Lutzer has had, he said, about 20 to 30 percent. 20 plus percent in his church, Moody Church in Chicago, of converted Catholics. And these folks are <laughs> very clear in their minds as to the fact that there is a gap between Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism. And I have a quote here, I, don't, I didn't identify it, I should have. The Catholic Church will not, indeed cannot, endorse an evangelical view of salvation. So slogans, dialogues, and and even having a common adversary in secularism does not change the fact that there is this grand canyon that separates biblical evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism that can't be just swept under the rug. All right, let me pick it up now and just touch on these issues that do separate. And is the Reformation over? Scripture alone, sola scriptura. What still exists here today? The primacy of the Pope. Who is the head of the church according to Roman Catholicism? It's the Pope. Now they say Christ's vicar. That is Christ's surrogate. His Christ's stand-in. So they have their way of saying, oh yeah, Christ's the head of the church. But the Pope in the apostolic succession from Peter He's the head of the church, and he must be, his authority must be recognized. And, <clears throat> but the issue with regard to sola scriptura is that, is the Pope the final authority for the interpretation of scripture? The Council of Trent and the, um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, by the way, these are quite accessible. This is easier to do now than it was 20 years ago. If you want sources, uh, I... I just Googled in uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1990, was it 96, 94? There it is. You can get it and read it. I had to get my magnifying glass up on the screen to read some of this stuff, but it's there. I'm going to reference some of it a little, little bit later on. The promise, but let me move from there. Uh, there is the primacy of experience within evangelicalism. We've got a problem within profess among professing evangelicals that <clears throat> where preference and experience are everything. Ethical issues are decided on the basis of personal stories that elicit the most sympathy. It happens all the time. I'm not saying that we don't shouldn't use anecdotes and such and sermons. But you've got to be a little suspicious of a guy who walks around on a platform, maybe having access to his Bible, maybe not, and just tells a lot of good stories. That's got to raise some suspicions. And then the experiences then very easily become the new tradition. Individual dilemmas are determined on the basis of one's personal feelings. Divine revelation has been replaced by subjectivity. Just a statement here. What about the relationship between the Bible and experience? It's not that complicated. 
Feeling does not produce truth. Truth produces the right feelings. We don't manufacture. This goes back. This is why that Frank sent me a link this week, and it had one message on there that I listened to twice by Michael Reeves. He was at the TMAI conference and was just, it's worth listening to uh, if you can get it online. Um, and he was painting, the, his subject was what's happened to Europe and how that helps to explain this shift, this sea change in the matter of authority and what the church is up against. All right, let's keep moving. Bible exposition has been replaced by felt needs preaching. I'm saying, folks, the Reformation's not over. We've got work to do. And this felt needs preaching. I've just I've got one of these, uh, boy, my mind's still working, feebly as it, feeble as it is, that uh, an article on biblical exposition, why it is so important. It's not just a matter of uh, baked potatoes versus mashed potatoes. <laughs> it's important what biblical exposition does to a culture, culture in the church. And when you set out on the, on the mission of felt needs, you know, understand what I mean? You, you pick top. I'm not against topical preaching. I had a grandfather who was one of the best I ever heard at it because he'd take biblical topics. He could take a topic like heaven and he could work it through. He only had an eighth grade education, didn't go to seminary. But he could take a topic like heaven and you'd say, just keep on, Brother Morris. <laughs> and my, he would whip. I met, I met someone recently who um, I got another grandfather, my Papa Morris story. I, thought, I didn't know anybody was left, but he would whip out his handkerchief and he could just take the saints to heaven and back. Beth knows about this and how this. Uh, <laughs> this. But he could take, my point is, he could take a topic, a biblical topic, and work it. Work it so that time you get there. All right, so I'm not dissing topics, but I'm saying there's no substitute. Topical preaching is no better than having the foundation for it and understanding the text. Then there is, going to move. There's the two book theory. I'm still on sola scriptura. The Reformation is not over. The two book theory has replaced scripture alone. You know what the two book theory is? You understand it? Understand it, it works this way. It, it's the matter of science in the Bible. There is the book of nature. There's the book, the Bible. The book of nature, scientists interpret it. The book, the Bible, theologians interpret it. Ah, so then all truth's God's truth. So we have to find some kind of a, we have to amalgamate. We have to get them to fit together. Oh, that's a horse with wheels right there. When you, <laughs> you get into that mode, and you know what gets the short end of the stick. The short end of the sick, the Bible. We've got to find ways to make the changes. So what happens? Scholars become the final authority, the sola scriptura. Scholars, whether so-called scientists, you've seen how much that's been used politically in recent years as to being the final authority, so-called science. And, and liberal scholars have influenced a generation or two or three of seminarians Christians says, we've got to listen to the scholars. The Bible's too complicated. We've got, to, oh, we've got to go to them, find out what they tell us. And just as an aside, I'm, um, I've had a little Facebook communication in the last uh, month uh, with a 
classmate of mine from Columbia, class of 63. Smartest guy in the class, he was. And, uh, you know, the kind you get through his exam, be out the door, and everybody else is still laboring halfway through. And uh, nice guy. Um, but uh, I, some, we got connected in a friend thing on Facebook. And so I see some things pop coming up. I was kind of wondering where he was about some things because he was quite political, a lot of political stuff. But you, know, you got to choose your battles here. And so <clears throat> something, I can't get to rambling on this too much, but to, just to say what came up is that it comes out that my friend is, uh, oh, he is up to his ears in belief in theistic evolution. And Suzanne knows about this. Um, theistic evolution. And this is the the two-book thing. So we've been working, going back and forth and on some other issues as well. It's all public if you want to go to the site and read it. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a nasty fight. It's, we've kept it gentlemanly. But I just, just, here it is. There it is. And I see, oh, my, what do you have to do to the scriptures? All right, got to pedal fast. The Bible, those say the Bible is no longer inerrant, merely inspired, but the Bible is not just true, it's truer than anything else. Sola Scriptura. That's where we begin. All right. Christ alone. Solus Christus. Contrary views of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. You know, this is what produced the Reformation. Well, it was Solus Christus. It was not a difference over Christology. Roman Catholicism believed in Chalcedonian Christology. Chalcedon was one of the great church councils and produced the creed on the, uh, the, the, the two natures of Christ in, in um, what, the 500s. And, um, but that was not the issue. The Roman Catholic Church, the, the heresy was with regard to the work of Christ and the atonement. His saving. So what do we face today? But well, before I go to that, just to say this, that purgatory... Roman Catholic Church belief in purgatory strips Christ of his glory as a merciful and fully sufficient Savior. And it also destroys any confident joy in us. Purgatory. Now, has the Catholic Church, has it abandoned its belief in purgatory? No, it hasn't. I gave you something that I... Uh, uh, went to the Catholic cate Catechism of the Catholic Church... Here it is, uh, 10.30, the final purification or purgatory. All, quote, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification. So as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. I have a couple other paragraphs, but I can't read those. And uh, there is even now in the works some evangelicals who are making arguments for purgatory. Not the Catholic version of it, but for another version of it. And one is, is one book in print on this and arguing that, well, and you, by the way, did you know that C.S. Lewis advanced my ideas, winsomely so, on this kind of Protestant purgatory concept, C.S. Lewis. And that the way it works is that what we need after death is a time 
sort of a halfway house to get us ready for that rarefied, pure life of without sin in heaven forever. But we kind of have to have a place to go to get uh, oriented. It's like a theological orientation period of time for eternity. So, the folks, the Reformation is not over. And I, because time I got, I just want to say that the emphasis, the problem today with Solus Christus, the challenge we face, is that though the issue was primarily one of the sufficiency of the atonement, which battled, the, the reformers challenged, it, it was sufficient, and the mass took away from the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ. Today, it's inclusivism and sufficiency. Which uh, meaning that there are multiple ways to Christ and the Christ within us that has been created in this subjective spirituality that our culture is just shot through and through with it. And where we determine truth by our own hearts, and that is our own feelings. All right, I can mention a book. Uh, I've got, I know there's some here who read. I know that some do. I want to tell you a book that's uh, really helpful in this, Above All Earthly Powers by David Wells. And his chapter, um, Christ in a Spiritual World, in this book, it's worth the book to show you what we're up against. Christ in a Spiritual World, to show, to remind you that we're up against the challenges to Solus Christus in the way the popular culture thinks, and even Christians now, as to what's, what's happened. That's uh, Above All Earthly Powers by David Wells. All right, let's go to Sola Gratia. Soli Gratia. Praise grace alone. Contrary views on assurance and relief from guilt. The Roman Catholic Church <clears throat> still believes that saving grace comes through the sacraments. It has not changed. And by the way, saying sola, uh, soli gratia, that's just another way of saying solus Christus, the, 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 essentially the, the same. But let me speak to this for a moment, this uh, grace alone. The problem which Luther faced was grace as a spiritual energy drink. You remember my Red Bull thing that I spoke of? That in enabling grace, we have to be given grace, but we earn that. It's earnable so that then you can work toward, over a period of time, accumulation of earnable grace, preparatory grace. Now, there is an issue that has arisen in recent days, and I'll just give it a sideward glance, but uh, it's an important one. And that's the whole, de there is something of a, of a debate going on among evangelicals over the term of cheap grace. Have you heard that one? All right, it's become popular in the last 30 years or so. Cheap grace. What is cheap grace? Well, I'll tell you where it comes from. Uh, the term got its, uh, it was coined and made popular by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And you get this, uh, you can, it's, it's how many times. I've gone through the book by Eric Metaxas on Bonhoeffer. And I went to the index and I found every reference to cheap grace and read it and took note of those uh, what he means by it, for sure, it means that he's describing the German citizenry, the German church, I should say, the German church prior to the rise of the Third Reich in Hitler in the 1930s in Germany, and how the church just capitulated, went over to um, fascism, and very few stood up to it. 
And he very articulately described what had happened. He spoke about it. It was cheap grace. That Christians who gave lip service to confession of Christ, but yet in their lives just denied the truths of Scripture left and right and were willing to make this gargantuan compromise <clears throat> with fascism. And so <clears throat> I, maybe I could just summarize his, I've summarized it this way, that I, I think the best way to handle this, way, to, make, to make it appear as if there is a cheaper form of real grace, that's, I don't think that helps us. It's a wrong attitude toward grace. It's really, one. Uh, Reeves does a good job with this in his, in his book, um, does the, uh, Why the Reformation Still Matters. Actually, I was reading this again this afternoon. This is one of the best sections in there. It's on page 91 and following on the subject of cheap grace. He, he discusses this. Very helpful. I'm going to try to synthesize it here in about three minutes. That what grace does, it gives us union with Jesus Christ. Some of you read The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ. So it's in this vein of thought. That grace gives us union with Christ. And union with Christ is a game changer. Game changer. Introducing law into this to try to put grace on some kind of, or to put an additive in grace, like grace needs, come on, let's get it, so it's not cheap and weak. No. That what we need is not an additive to it, but what we have is that we have Christ alone. Into, we have been brought into union with Christ. And so what is described as cheap grace is not true grace. It's a counterfeit. When you come to Christ, there's going to be a trajectory immediately created by regeneration and a movement toward love for God and love for one's neighbor. Here's what Luther said. Through faith in Christ... Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, rather he himself becomes ours. Do you get that? Christ becomes ours. So some of this uh, debate over cheap grace and accusing, well, you're guilty of it. No, you're, you're guilty of this. You're guilty. Can we not agree that when you come to Christ, you're in union with Christ? There's a change of heart. Now, the issue of sin in the Christian's life, that's another issue. But there's movement. There's movement in the heart of a changed person. And uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That whole issue wrapped up in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. But Luther's battle, let's get back to this so we can finish up, that Luther's battle, excuse me, uh, went too far ahead. That what we find then in the, the conflict that Luther had with the Roman Catholic Church was this, is that grace then was made some kind of thing that you could get by doing something and you could get it. No, and grace is wrapped up in the person of Christ and that then redefines us as people who are in Christ. All right, faith alone, faith alone. Contrary views with regard to the relationship between faith and works. This one we've been over enough, but I want to read something to you from the Catholic, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Listen to this. Is the Reformation still over? 
I'm going to read this. You, you draw your conclusion. 1127, the sacraments of salvation. The, cat, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. The Spirit heals and transforms those who receive him by conforming them to the Son of God. The fruit of the sacramental life is that the spirit of adoption makes the faithful partakers the faithful partakers in the divine nature by uniting them in a living union with the only Son, the Savior. By the way, when you read this stuff, and I went and re I read some of the Council of Trent and the Catholic the Catechism, and I'm telling you, I was reading statements by the Catholic Church and says, this sounds pretty good in places. But it's sort of like... Uh, it's like that uh, Prestone antifreeze for what the wife gives to her husband, the Prestone cocktail. Some, some not all wives, but uh, some have done it. Where, you know, it's, it has the color, the smell, and a sweet taste, and you can put it in with whatever else you're drinking. It's lethal. This is the way it is with false teaching. You've got to really be on your toes. And I think, well, I can see how people can get, I can see why scholars, evangelical scholars, sit down and then you, you get comfortable, you have coffee with one another and you eat lunch and you feel a little emotional bond and you, okay, hey, you're a good guy, I'm a good guy, we like one another, that's a good joke, okay. You, you like this, I like that. You like that movie, I like this movie. You play golf, I play golf. Let's go play together. And you develop a friendship. And then you get the language then that begins to get a little, it's not exactly right, but hey, why not, let's not fuss over crossing the, uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Let's, we're, we're good. Reformation's over. Let's go have a show of hands here. And then it comes out to the Christian public. It's kind of stuff. It's the Prestone effect. All right, enough of that on this problem. And I'm going to go to the final and finish up. The glory of God alone. Contrary views on the secular and the sacred. If the Mass is still the sacred place, if the priesthood is still a sacred occupation, is there not then this continuing separation of the two, the secular from the sacred? And what we say, no, is there, there is not. And Christians need to stand up, speak up, live out the fact that soli deo gloria is to be seen in all of life. And it's no more real in a place or doing something than it is somewhere else, as long as it is done for the glory of God. Johann Sebastian Bach, SDG, on all his works, you know, says soli deo gloria, everything. But you don't have to be a great composer. And so this, uh, for the glory of God alone, I covered this last week, and I, I feel at least in my own mind it's, it's kind of, I, I'm, I think I'm just going to let that sit because we're out of time. But I do want to make two conclusions here, what we need to do. If we want to live as people who are declaring that the Reformation is not over, but we're not going out the doors with uh, pitchforks, and sticks, let's go get them. No. What do we do? Soli Deo Gloria says that the entirety of my life must be looked upon 
as the way in which I can bring the greatest glory to the gospel in God's greatness and his goodness. In the manner of life that I live, whether it's my marriage or it's in parenting, my schoolwork, my, my uh, friendships, the, the, the way I conduct myself and live in my neighborhood, the way I conduct myself on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And by the way, I got just a minute here. I'm reading an interesting um, um, article from Christianity Today, and it's a review of a book called Don't Let Them See You Cry. And it is uh, really a helpful uh, evaluation of the whole uh, social media culture. And this, the, the lady that's written this has done a lot of work. She's written a previous book on this. So I, I recommend it. And if you, you want to especially connect with the millennials um, and understand what's going on in their world and the dangers, don't let them see you cry. And she, she okay, I'll just leave you with that tease, teaser and, and go on. But I, and I want to come back to, even forgot how I got off on that. But uh, I want to say that what we need to come to in this church so that we can live out soli deo gloria and everything. Oh, I remember what I said. Make sure we live out soli deo gloria in the way we conduct ourselves on social media. And I keep getting stories back that, that filter to me about so-and-so defriends this person, they defriend that person, and they use this as vengeance. They use them as weapons of vengeance and jealousy and all kinds of stuff. All right, all right two things, just two things, and I'm preaching to the choir, and I've got the senior pastor and the pastor, whatever your title is, Eric, I'm not sure, <laughs> the journeyman here, <laughs> that, that uh, Bible exposition has got to make the flow, the biblical truth has got to flow in our veins. That, that's, our, that's our source of nutrition. It's got to flow in our veins. And we've got to find ways, how, wherever we can, just let's maintain that and how we reinvent ourselves, okay. But we've got to have Bible exposition, Bible truth. Bible has got to be constantly flowing, constantly, or we kill ourselves. And the other is simply that the soli deo gloria um, is that we've got to be passionate about how we get out the gospel in every place that we can. And this study has helped me to reinvigorate me and my own witness and whether where are we in a grocery store or whether we're communicating the, in the right way on the on the social media to bear witness to Christ there, um, I was I'll close with this. I I was in uh, now there have been times I haven't done this, so I'm not trying to make myself the hero of of this line of thought, but uh, it happened. And I happened to be in the uh, Kroger grocery store up here at Bank Station. This was yesterday. Beth's out of town, so I was doing some work to try to get some creative uh, a, a meal. And, <clears throat> and um, so I come across, there's this, there's this 93-year-old man that I see at the gym. Uh, I've seen him at the gym, even back at World Gym for years before. So we have a history. 93 years old. He's fit. <laughs> he is fit. But that's not why we talk. We, uh, he saw me. He'd just come back from New Jersey uh, at a funeral. I thought, oh, he just set the table for me there. Funeral, death, I think we could talk about death. He brought it up. So 
I went on a little further with him, and he'd, I let him talk. He likes to talk. And uh, about the whole matter of uh, funerals and what, what have you, and what he's experienced, what he knows. So I said, Richard, um, I don't know that I've taken the time to really make this very clear to you, but I want to tell you something about the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel and the only way to get to heaven. You know, there's only one way to get to heaven. And I just I spoke to him in these terms that, you know, God requires a righteousness that we don't have in order to enter into his heaven and to, and to be, belong to him, to have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And it's a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. I just went ahead and used the theological language. <laughs> and I said, and you know where it is? That righteousness is in Christ. And I need it. I don't have it. And God gives it to me. It's a gift. It's free. And um, you need to just reach out and receive that gift. And we're standing right there between the flower section and the fruit stand in Kroger. And I kind of got lost in the sense of where I was. My voice might have got up a little bit. And, um, and he, he was cordial, but he was trying to find a way to move away. And, and about that time, as I turned around just to move away, I looked, there was a man standing over there behind the, an older man with his, looked like his grandson, and he had this interesting smile on his face. I would really love to know what he was smiling about. He was just standing there, I could tell he'd been listening and was smiling. And I, you know, I reminded, Lord, this message, there have been too many times where I've missed opportunities like this. And this gospel for which the reformers gave themselves and have it's, our, it's the heritage they've given to us. We're free to declare the gospel. God help us to do so. And as this church does that, and we, turn, we get turned loose here every week in all the things that we can do and do in this church, that I'm going to tell you that we can set the woods on fire evangelistically for Christ. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, help us, enable us, Kindle the fire in our souls again to be more faithful in our witness and cards we write and message we send and maybe even in texting. <laughs> Why not? Show us how to give the gospel in 45, 145 characters or less, Lord. <laughs> and the many things we can do for your glory, for, your, for the name of Christ and for the gospel. Thank you for the opportunity to present these things and settle them now down in our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.